From APM, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Emily Hanford. Jessica Leahy has been a teacher for 17 years. She's also a writer and a parent. A few years ago, she started noticing something troubling about her students. They seemed like they were acutely afraid of making mistakes in the classroom. Leahy realized her own children were experiencing the same sort of fear of failure. She writes about this in her new book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Leahy joined me recently to talk about her book and how these parenting insights can also apply to the classroom. In the introduction of the book, you quote from an essay that one of your students wrote. She was an eighth grader at the time. Mm -hmm. So can you read uh, the excerpt from her essay uh, for us? Some people are afraid of heights. Some are afraid of water. I am afraid of failure, which, for the record, is called atichophobia. I am so afraid of failing that I lose focus on what actually matters, learning. In focusing on the outcome, I lose the value of the actual assignment and deprive myself of learning. So this was kind of an aha moment for you? Yeah, it was. <laughs> as both a teacher and as, as a parent, it sounds like there were some things kind of coming together. So so what? You, you, say, you say in the book that we, sort of the collective we, have taught kids to, to fear failure. So how? Why? What's going on? Well, you know, I've been teaching for a long time, off and on for 17 years. In fact, I, I really did waddle into my first classroom, very pregnant with my now almost 17-year-old. And over that time, I just saw students retreating from any moment when they didn't seem effortlessly smart. They didn't seem um, so smart that, you know, they automatically knew the answer for everything, or they didn't have to pause before a Latin translation. You know, I'd have to actually stop them and say, no, 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 you guys, actually, I want you to go out on a limb here and not give me just what you think I want to hear. And that was really hard for them. Writing rough drafts got more and more difficult. Uh, They seem to think that everything is supposed to flow out of their pen um, perfectly on the page. And as any writer knows, that's not how writing works. Um, and, And it got to the point where students were so afraid to admit that they didn't know something that they wouldn't ask questions, and they also were afraid of writing down anything that seemed incomplete or imperfect at all, and that's just a disaster for education. You're making it sound like this is a problem that seemed to be growing worse. Do you think this is something that's been changing, or were you just noticing it in more of its manifestations? I think think it's a couple of different things. I think that in the schools that I was teaching in at the time, which were fairly, uh, you know, well-performing, high-performing, many of them independent schools, a couple of them public schools, the parents were so micromanaging their kids' success and so micromanaging every aspect of how the kid learned that between that and the fact that parents could check on the grading portals, you know, 10 times a day to see exactly what the quiz score was for the quiz the kid took the day before, I think kids were just so cognizant of the fact that they could be checked up on at any moment. And so for there to even be be the question of a a low grade hanging out there for more than 24 hours was just paralyzing for them. So what, what do you make of what was going on and what the sort of problem is with all that? I think the parents have become so afraid that their children won't succeed according to these very narrow parameters of success that parents have laid out for them, meaning, you know, a big name college, a, a Ivy League college, uh, you know, six figure plus salary, that kind of thing, that success has become so narrowly defined by these parents that uh, the kids are 
feeling like that is the only avenue that they will get any kind of positive feedback from their parents. And see, here's the thing is I kept saying the parents, the parents, the parents. And then on the day, actually, that this essay, my student wrote this essay that I was just referring to, I noticed that my son was out on the playground in his big, tall boots because he, as it turns out, is the only or was the only third grader who couldn't tie his shoes. And that was my fault. Um, I had done exactly what I was blaming those parents for. And in that day, at that moment, um, I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm complicit in this, too. And there is no more those parents, those parents, because I was, I am those parents. And so I needed a way forward. And that's what this book was about for me. So how's the fact that your son couldn't tie his shoes connect into this, what you're, what you're student was describing in that essay. I mean, talk about how those things connect. Uh, well, this student was uh, this student was completely um, so tied up in her perfectionism in in seem like I said seeming effortlessly perfect that she was so afraid to try anything that was at all challenging. And my son, on the other hand, wasn't able to tie his shoes right off the bat. It frustrated him. He would get irritated and frustrated. I would say oh, just let me do that for you. It's faster if I do it. Or, you know, next time we buy shoes, I'll just get the Velcro ones because, you know, that's faster, that's easier. And we we just went around the problem for so long and avoided it for so long that by the time he hit third grade and still couldn't tie his shoes, it was embarrassing to him. Um, So we're no longer in a situation where this is normal sort of late blooming. This is mom has been running interference for so long and been tying the shoes for him for so long that um, we've just avoided dealing with it. Now he's embarrassed by it. And the student, likewise, is so embarrassed by anything that doesn't look perfect um, that she either says, okay, well, I'm done with that because I'm not good at it right away, or um, she just doesn't tell anybody about it or hides it from the world. Um, So she only did things that she was good at, and my son was only doing things that he was good at right off the bat. And that's that's completely limiting. And that's antithetical to what we should be doing as teachers and parents. Okay. So as a parent, you were recognizing your own overparenting and doing too much for your kids. Now, what what did you start doing differently as a teacher? How does that connect to what you're seeing kids doing in the classroom and what you're going to now do differently as a teacher? I really lucked out with the timing here because The same stuff that works to promote intrinsic motivation, which is three things, autonomy, competence, and connection. Um, That autonomy means that you have control over the details of something. Competence means that it's in the sweet spot in terms of it's not too easy, it's not too hard, and you have experience um, with the thing you're doing so that you feel kind of uh, that you can handle the challenges. And then also connection. Connection meaning, you know, the connection to your teacher, the connection to your parents, knowing your parents aren't loving you, you know, only because of your grades, that they're really supporting you. But also the connection that, you know, the stuff I'm teaching in the classroom is really connected to the bigger world, that the stuff I'm teaching in this classroom will matter to these kids. So that was a big area that there was a lot of room for improvement there. And so, like I said, that I got really lucky with the timing because research in education right now is showing that the more disconnected the students are from the things they're learning, the less they learn them. And lecturing just doesn't work. So me standing up in front of the classroom and being like this, you know, big monolith at the front of the room spewing out knowledge, that doesn't work. What works is to give them some control, project-based learning, problem-based learning, student-led learning, peer-to-peer learning, where the students actually gets their hands dirty in the details of the learning and have some control over 
the details of how they learn it, where they learn it, why they're learning it. Um, so the more control I sort of gave back to my students, for example, instead of my coming to class with the in Latin class with the um, the teacher workbook with all the answers right in front of me, you know, you get it's as a teacher, it's great. You get to look so smart. You have the answers right there in front of you. I would actually copy those and give sections of them to various students. And I would go through it ahead of time with them. And I'd say, okay, you're going to run class this Tuesday. Here's your answer key. Understand why the answers are right, but also understand how your classmates might get them wrong. So try doing it without the uh, answer key first and see what you get wrong and all that sort of stuff. And that's so great because it teaches students perspective taking. It teaches them empathy. It teaches it get, helps get them dirty in the process of learning. So all of the stuff that I was doing to become a more autonomy supportive teacher also made me a better teacher. And that's it's scary to hand power back to students because we're so used to being that person at the front of the classroom that just hands it down. Um, but that's not how great learning happens. That's just not how it works. How does that help get at or resolve the problem, though, of the fear of failure? They mm-hmm. seem like they're connected, but not completely. I mean, that that student who was so afraid to try anything right. and, and you know, needed to be such a perfectionist. How, how is what you're talking about help solve that problem? Well, two ways. Once you're more, once you have more autonomy over your learning, you have more ownership over your learning. And it's a lot easier to screw up things that you're personally invested in. If you screw up a math problem that you have sort of no emotional connection to, no inkling that this is ever going to be ever going to be used by you ever again in your life, you know, frankly, you're going to try it. You're going to feel a little upset when you get it wrong and and sort of move on. But a kid who has a lot of investment in a project when it goes wrong um, is going to keep working at it. Now, the other thing is that um, part of part of what I do a lot with middle school students is help help them develop their um, their own their executive function and. They need to come up with their own goals, and they need to come up with their own way to achieve those goals. Um, That's sort of that self-defined executive function. And it's easier to risk failure for things that are your own goals. It's This is something we did at home, too. I took sort of what I was doing in advising with my students home to my dinner table and said, look, we're not going to talk about grades at home anymore, but what we will talk about is our goals. So let's all of us right now set some goals for things that are, you know, a little challenging. And one of those goals has to be something that is really challenging, that you're not sure you're going to be able to achieve. I was doing the same things with my students. I don't know why I hadn't figured out that it might work at home, too. So anytime you have more investment in something that is your own personally defined goal, the less scary it is when you screw it up because it's your goal. Who cares? But also, you're just more invested in trying again. Okay. But grades and test scores are so baked into just the fundamental structure of our schools. So you are really making an argument in this book that they get in the way, that the grades and tests are in our way. So what what do you do about that as a teacher? What what should we be thinking about doing about that? I guess if I had a magic wand and I could have written this book any way I wanted, I would have waved the magic wand and say, okay, we don't have we don't have this structure of grades anymore. Yay, let's talk about a better way to do it. Um, but that's not the world we live in right now. Right now, grades are the way things work and points and scores and tests and things like that. So I had to figure out a way to write this book that talked about ways around it and ways to cope with it as opposed to just being some kind of Pollyanna that says, yay, we're done, that's all. Um, and there are plenty of teachers right now and and administrators working on 
other ways to do this. And there are I've written articles on, you know, why letter grades deserve an F and, and some other possible um, possible ways to go about assessing kids. You know, kids get the grade thing everywhere. They get it at school. They get it in their among their friends. They get it, you know. So one thing that you can do is make your home a place where goals are more important than grades, where you just don't discuss them. You mentioned at the very beginning that your aha moment about all of this was when you were teaching in mostly very um, highly resourced right. schools with highly competitive parents. Right. So I am curious. It does seem sometimes in this book like you're speaking to a particular audience of, of parents who are the highly educated, upper middle class parents who are really concerned about making sure their kid gets off on a great path into life. And so I am wondering about the relevance of this. Like right now, I notice in the conversation about education that there's a lot of enthusiasm about talking about the the um, letting kids fail and how great it is to fail. But of course, there are lots of kids out there for whom failure isn't sort of like optional. I mean, right. there's a lot of failure. Right. They're they're stuck in failing schools and they're stuck in families that have a lot of challenges. And um, they don't really like the idea that failure is a great thing. It just doesn't sound the same when you're talking um, in, in those kinds of circumstances. So I'm curious what how what you make of the kind of um, who the audience is for this book and what you have to say to sort of the larger, broader question of what's happening in America and American schools. You know, I was having a conversation about this just last week with um, Julie Lithcott-Hames, whose book How to Raise an Adult is about a similar subject matter, but coming at it from the perspective um, that she had as a dean at a freshman dean at Stanford, where she saw the best and the brightest coming to Stanford and um, falling apart and unable to uh, have unable to sort of seize the reins and take control of their lives. And I don't think that that's classes. I don't think that can be assigned to a particular class. Julie and I were talking about, well, what is the difference between overparenting that wealthy parents are doing versus overparenting that, um, you know, other parents of lower income are doing? And she said, well, for her, it seemed to come down to wealthier parents feel like it's perfectly fine to go into a teacher or an administrator's office and bang on the table and say, you will do this as a, you know, you will give my kid an A, you will, you know, accept, uh, give me an A for that science project that I helped my kid complete. Um, whereas kids who come from lesser means, kids from low, lower socioeconomic uh, levels, their parents are st- often their parents are still overparenting, but they're overparenting in the arena they can control, which is, um, micromanaging home life and overprotecting, um, which is also reducing a kid's feeling of autonomy and agency. And it's funny, you, you say this thing about, you know, how the the, uh, the ramifications of failing for those kids are even higher. And that's true, which is even which means it's even more important that kids feel like they can self-advocate and that they have a sense of agency. And there are plenty of studies that show that if that when you're in poverty, one of the big problems you face is a lack of control. And while it's true that, um, you know, money does give you power, it gives you the power to come in and demand things of people or to get things you need. But at the same time, kids of all levels need to know that they can speak up for themselves, that they can advocate for themselves. I've said, you know, for a long time now that, for example, with college, you know, where you go to college, I think is less important than the student's ability to self-advocate once they're there. Um, and, you know, kids who come from poverty, kids who come um, come to school with um, learning differences, there it's going to be even more important to self-advocate. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I think one of the things that I'm noticing in this conversation is that 
the idea that a solution to this is to get better at letting our kids experience failure. Mm -hmm. But I think what's complicated is that to really sort of like fix a lot of the things that are that need to be fixed in our educational system, it's a hell of a lot more than just letting a poor kid fail. Of course. Of course. <laughs> and so we get very enthusiastic and there's a certain right. bunch of us who get very enthusiastic about this. Okay, that's what we can do. We can yeah. just let them fail more. Yeah. That doesn't solve it for a lot of people. No, and, and the other thing I didn't want to do was put another parenting book out there that made parents feel like, oh my gosh, here's one more thing I've got to do. It's so hard already. I have to and, let them fail. I know, <laughs> I know. But that off. but really, I think at, at the heart of this book is 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 one basic message, which is number one, from a parenting perspective and from a teaching perspective, we have to be thinking longer term. Um, as a teacher, I know everything gets more stressful and dire when I'm thinking about you know everything that has to happen today perfectly. And as a parent, you know, things get way more dire for me if I'm thinking about making sure my child's improving on a daily basis. But if you can back up for a second and say, okay, what's going to, what core things are going to be really important a year from now, six months from now, and make sure we're doing those things really well. And those things are assuring that kids have feel competent, that they, they feel like they have control over their, their learning environment and have some control over their lives, and that they know that they are connected to the adults that matter to them. Um, I was recently at a conference where we were talking about hope and about mentorship and relationships. And one of the things we know about hope and connectedness and um, relationships with teachers and, and relevant adults in our lives is that sometimes it just takes one adult that has faith in us and shows us that we can hope for better. That can be the difference between success and failure. And so really what I'm talking about is not, you know, go out, make sure your kids fail. What I'm talking about is give them some autonomy, allow them to feel competent. And then when they do mess up, know that we love them, not based on their performance, not based on their test scores, not based on the grades, but because we love them for who they are. And, that, you know, at the core, that's that's really the message of this book. Well, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Jessica Leahy is the author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. You can find a link to Leahy's book and her other writing at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, check out our other education podcast episodes and browse through the archive of more than 100 documentary projects. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. We'd love to hear what this podcast made you think about. Will you share it with friends or colleagues or your kids? Let us know at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Click on the About tab and choose Share Your Impact Story. Support for American Radio Works comes from Lumina Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Emily Hanford. Thanks for listening. This is APM. APM.